Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasko. And today, we're going to talk about world building. Specifically, we're going to try and give you some tips and tricks to make world building easier for you and add a little bit more process to something that can a lot of the time feel nebulous and hard to sink your teeth into. Ariel, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll start with where I started. I filled a notebook with every detail possible about the world that I was going to run my very first campaign in. I don't think I've looked at that notebook very many times since. It ended up being that I wasn't really focused on what the players were going to use, and a lot of that information just wasn't relevant to where my players wanted to go. So I think after all of that, my advice for a process would not be to build out a whole story and a whole arc with every detail filled in by yourself before the campaign. Certainly it's a lot of fun and I enjoy doing it, but I really want to push back on this idea that you need to know a lot to DM. I think what you actually need to know is very little, and that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah, I think that's, that's an incredibly common experience that new DMs and experienced DMs go through is the more world building you do up front, that, that's great. That's awesome. It's going to make your world feel lived in when your players interact with those things that you were able to put the time and energy into thinking about up front. However, it's often that your players won't interact with those things that you wrote at all and will actually want to go in entirely other directions. And this is where DMs can have kind of like a conflict of interest where oh, do I make the players go in the direction of things that I wrote about? Or do I follow them and kind of throw away the things that I did write about? Something that comes to mind is perhaps a player starts off running Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which is a a written module by Wizards of the Coast. And they have this whole grand idea of how they're going to kind of run into... Uh, Rise of Tiamat, or some plotline that's similar to Rise of Tiamat, where the players are going to start off in Waterdeep, and then eventually they're going to venture out into the Sword Coast, or your version of Waterdeep, and then they're going to venture out into the the lands of your continent. And instead, your players fall in love with this pirate character that was in the beginning of your story, and they want to become pirates and go out to sea. You've done all of this world building for your continent, and now the players want to go off in a completely other direction and you're forced to throw out all that world building that you did. So how can we as DMs world build efficiently is I think maybe a better question that we're going to try to answer today. Right. So I like to think about what are my players going to learn? And this can be for just a session or it could be for a, a longer arc. And if you have that in mind, I think you're not necessarily over planning because like Ray said DMing efficiently is actually pretty important it takes a lot of time and sometimes it can be exhausting there's definitely something that we experience of DM burnout DMing efficiently and really thinking about what your players are going to learn throughout your session I think is a great way to minimize what you have to do and maximize your enjoyment I think that was a perfect distinction that you just made there Ariel The difference between macro world building, which is deciding how things are in your world, and maybe that involves legends and lore and just 
things that exist in your world versus what are my players going to interact with this session? And I think that DMs run into problems when they world build the way that they do when a player is about to run into something specific for a piece of the world that's far away or a piece of the plot that's far away. When a player is arriving at a location, you need to have that place really fleshed out and detailed. If you are applying that level of detail to locations and people and organizations that your players are far away from, you are setting yourself up to have to throw away that work. And I think a distinction here that I'd want to make is that this is such a different experience for everybody. World building is very personal. What you like is going to be extremely personal. So if you get energy and excitement for your campaign by building out the greater story, continue to do that. I think we're trying to address what can be difficult for a lot of people and give advice based on that. Yeah, definitely. If you're someone who loves world building because it's what you enjoy doing, keep doing it. It will only add wonderful depth and a feeling of verisimilitude to your world. What we're trying to help with is a common feeling of a DM putting all this love into a setting and in their mind, they're framing it as, wow, I'm doing all of this work for my players. I can't wait for them to come to this location and see all of these awesome things that I did for them. And then the players never interact with that. And then there's a feeling of wasted time and energy. This is exactly why we like to talk about what are my players going to learn? Because then you're thinking about all this great world building you did and how to connect it to your players. So that can really be for just one session and you'll have great D&D. Or like I said, it can be for a larger arc. For just one session, though, you like to think about who are the interesting characters what are the structures in the place that my characters are going to meet? Are they going to come into a thieves' guild or are they going to come into a wizard's tower? Did I frame that correctly? Yeah, definitely. Even when I'm macro world building, the things that I spend time thinking about are who are the interesting people that I want my players to find in the future, the far-flung future, so that my players can hear about them and their deeds in this current session, just like you said, Ariel, what are my players gonna learn about this session? I want to foreshadow those people and those people belong to organizations. And those are the things that I'll flesh out at a macro level. And what I like to do is I like to not attach any locations to those people or motive or like deep motivations because what I want to be able to do with that macro level with those macro level characters is move them to the places where my players want to go. So building pieces of the world that are modular and being able to drop them in front of my players as they decide what cool locations they want to explore. So Ray, you've talked about all these different modules you like to build. Where do you start? The biggest problem I used to run into was I would have this idea and I would want to write about it, whether it be a person or an organization or this thing that happened in the past, like maybe this war that happened and I, I need to write about it and get some details down. And all of a sudden I have this giant paragraph of text that is filled with people, places, things, 
some names, some things, some things that I don't know the name of yet, but I know that they need names. And now all of a sudden this is in a Word document. And then I need to put it away for sometimes like months at a time before my players are going to interact with any of that content that I wrote about. And then all of a sudden I can't find the things that I was writing about. So I actually think that a huge part of being a good DM is your organization. And for me, the thing that is of paramount importance for organizing my ideas and thoughts is a platform that allows me to link notes. So what I need, what's super important to me personally is to have a web of small interconnected notes that point at each other. There's two apps that I've used for this, one of which is Bear and the other one is Notion, and we're completely unaffiliated with these two applications. They just have this specific feature that is so important to me, which is that you can, as you're writing stream of consciousness, type in the name of the title of something and just keep going. And what the app does is it automatically generates a blank note for that thing. So maybe I'm writing a sentence that says, Thieves Guild 1 gets into a conflict with Merchants Guild. Thieves Guild leader is upset and goes to King so-and-so. Now, what what's happened is I've been able to write about this conflict. And just as I've been writing about this conflict, we can tell that I've run into maybe like six proper nouns that all need cool fantasy sounding names. And to go up, to go out and look up those names of those things that I know eventually will have names completely derails the thing that I sat down to write about. But because I'm using these apps, these linked notes have been created. And if I ever change the name of one of these things on their note, it will automatically update those names all throughout my entire note writing network. Right, so you have this whole structure in place immediately. It takes your blank page and turns it into a very textured, linked up note taking. We've kind of talked about this before. I, I don't use it because I, I feel like I just get overwhelmed sometimes and I don't pick up new tools so easily. So I, I will make it a priority to, to check these out because I think it will really help my world building it's really up to the enjoyment of world building for me because I'll sit down and I, there's a specific thing that I want to accomplish. And if I am writing for an hour and I haven't written about the thing that I sat down to write about because I'm spending time Googling different types of names, sifting through names that I feel are important just so that I can use that name everywhere and not use a placeholder and have to find and replace that name later really saps the kind of like the love of what I was sitting down to write about in the first place out of it. And I I find that I write more when I use applications like this. And when you're writing this down, you have all these proper nouns, and now they have all these linked notes. It puts you in a position where you then get to fill out all these linked notes. And now you have a reason to keep writing. You say, okay, well, I haven't filled out this proper nouns, name, and what they want, their motivation, and the structure existing gives you the the push to fill all these things out, and suddenly you've got a whole setting and you've got a whole story. That's exactly what happens. And what I can do is I can actually visualize which notes are not well connected to the entire graph. So if I've created a character 
and their only connection is to this guild that I was writing about, that is a great opportunity. Oh, instead of making an additional NPC that has one connection to the Thieves Guild, let's connect that note to the Thieves Guild. So this person has relationships in both the Thieves Guild and the Merchant Guild. Maybe they're related to someone in the Merchant Guild. And it allows me to make sure that no matter what directions my players are going in, they're interacting with my content because everything points to each other, which is the way that the real world works. That's really, really important. I think the idea of keeping track of the interconnectedness, and for me, it mostly happens in my head, which is probably bad. So I really like this idea that it gives you a tool where it shows you a literal web. It has nodes, which are these proper nouns, these places, these people, these things, and then it shows the connections between them. Anytime you can visualize something, I think it's really, really helpful for running good D&D because we spend so much of our time imagining things. When you can actually see it in front of you, I think it becomes very, very clear in your mind. I will say, I wonder how well this would work for my style though. One of the things I like to do when I'm prepping a session or an arc, I think, what do I want the feel of this arc to be? And a lot of times I think I want this to be murder mystery, or I want this to be a pirating adventure. And from there, I think about, okay, what are the conflicts in a murder mystery? Well, we want to know why the person was murdered. And I want to know how they were murdered, because that's where you get the mystery from. You need to figure out the why, and you need to figure out the how. So I start with those things. And then only after I figure out those details do I actually ask, who was the murderer? Who was the person who was murdered? And then for me, I branch out from there and then let my characters find those pieces. Absolutely. I think that that's a shortcoming of the way that I world build is my entire setting starts to feel a little bit homogenous because there aren't things that only exist in one part of the world because I am kind of moving things around to follow the players. So they will choose a primary thing that they want to go and interact with while they're questing, and that is the conflict that they are interacting with. But the background cast gets filled in with some NPCs that I feel like could have business nearby what they are interacting with. So there's definitely, the players absolutely have agency. The quest that they are embarking on matters. I'm just not filling out the background cast with a completely brand new cast of characters. I'm taking people that they've met in the past and dropping them in there. And I think the same thing could happen in your situation where you could macro plan with this kind of web. And then when you're trying to figure out who the players are in your murder mystery, you choose appropriate cast members from this web that you've built. But I think that's very prescriptive. And that's just the way that I would approach something like that. I think one of the things underpinning this conversation a little bit is also where we used published material in all of this process. So for me, if I want to run a heist, for instance, that's my conflict and my inciting incident might be this item was stolen, we need to steal it back. And then I'll go find published material that has heists in it. And I'll look through those and I'll get a lot of inspiration and then I'll ditch it. That is my process. I really like getting inspiration from published material 
and then figuring out which parts I like best from it, and then running on my own. That fits me, because I know I always like to put in the work. I'm a DM that always really enjoys putting in the work of doing world building such that I know every piece about what I'm running that session and it feels mine. So then if I have this you know, plot and this inciting incident and some details about a heist, I work with that and then I fill in the characters. But if you are really mostly using a published material, you're finding your setting, you're building it out, and then you're taking big pieces of what's happening from published material, your process might look a little bit different. Ray, you were saying that's often what you do. You often use kind of a published material as the real skeleton for your campaigns. Definitely. So all of these techniques that I've been talking about are techniques that I'm using to run out of the abyss, which is the written module that my players started in. And now I'm starting to take some other written modules and kind of globbing them on now that my players are level 12. They're kind of interacting with different pieces of content from different modules. So I rely on pre-written material very heavily, but to your point, Ariel, I do a lot of world building. What's going on here? Am I using pre-written material or am I world building? So when I read through pre-written material, what I like to do is I like to chop it up into its little modular pieces. Okay, cool. This faction is awesome. I'm going to take this. They don't need to be in the part of the world that the module says that they are, and they don't need to be doing what the module says that they're doing. Awesome. This city's really cool, and it comes with a map in the module. Awesome. I love maps. It helps my players visualize the setting. I may or may not use this setting the way that the pre-written module intended. So I love the concept of Mantle Dareth in Out of the Abyss. I love the idea that it's this place where the Zentarum, the Dwergar, the Drow, and the Deep Gnomes from Blingenstone all have these different guilds and interests in this one city. It's like a mixing of all the different factions and organizations that the players have interacted with on their escape through the Underdark in one place. Cool. That's awesome. I'm going to keep all that. I'm going to make it a hundred times bigger, and I'm going to drop in the Temple of Tomora in that city because one of my players has been having a crisis of faith with her god, and she needs to go to the central location of power for the organization. So I'm taking these things and these inspirations and these these feelings that these locations evoke from the pre-written material that have a lot of the work already done for you. There's lots of NPCs who are doing things in these in these locations that make for a really nice backdrop. It, even if like your main plot has been completely swapped out, there's usually random tables for things players will encounter while walking in different neighborhoods in these different cities. All of that is still useful. All of that is awesome. All of that is really good material that prevents you from spending time world building the small stuff. A follow-up question to that, which I think comes up a lot for DMs, again, of every experience, is how much of those published materials are you reading before you realize, I really like this, I want to put it in my campaign? At what point do you look at the thing and say, this is going to go here? Do you read the whole thing first? Usually, I have a pretty good idea of the different types of pre-written material that exist out there. 
I just listen to a lot of podcasts and I kind of just keep my ears open. So an example of something that happened was, oh, I want my players to be interacting with the resurrection of a very powerful god. Oh, there is a pre-written module where that is the central tension of the story, Rise of Tiamat. Let me go read that and scrap it for spare parts. So that's usually what happens is I know a direction that I want my story to go in. Let me go and find some pre-written material that has done something similar and see how much of that I can salvage and drop into my campaign as modular pieces. For me, I tend to read very little, so I'm curious if that also kind of fits in with your perspective. Since you know you have a story that you really want to include into your world, do you read every detail about it and then include it? Or do you pick out the pieces that are meaningful for you and you care about and then run with that and maybe don't finish the the module even? I definitely read specific parts of the module. So when I purchased Rise of Tiamat, because I knew I wanted not only Tiamat to be a major player in my campaign, but also her resurrection, one of the first things I did was go to the very end of Rise of Tiamat and find out what the details of resurrecting a god would be. And then as I started to fill out the Cult of the Dragon organization, I started to read other chapters, unlike weeks later, months later, oh, I need a like a low-level boss for the players to interact with that's a part of the Cult of the Dragon. Oh, they're featured in this chapter. Cool, I'll go and read chapter three of Rise of Tiamat and pull <laughs> that character and their motivations from Rise of Tiamat and drop it into my game. That makes perfect sense to me. I really think my process aligns with that very closely. So if we're on the same page, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> I think looking at the end of the book, if you know the thing you're excited about is at the end of the book, is great. And you can just pick up the things that you want from there and use it to inspire you. And then like you said, chapter four has this, I'm going to use that for my campaign. That's great. So I think this also is a very close tied into our discussion of efficiency. You don't have to read the whole book or the whole module if you can be efficient about knowing which parts of it you're interested in. And I think that's where our published versus homebrew idea of world building can really come together. If you use this process that we've been talking about to really dial in what you're going to run for your players in the next session or the next arc, you can actually go to this published material very efficiently. You know what you want to run already, so you can actually pick out these chapters. If I don't know what I want to run, if I am really coming at this from a totally blank slate, published material is very daunting. And it's this idea of being daunted as a DM is very, very common. Because you'll go and you'll buy a 200-page setting book, or you'll go and buy a 100-page published module. That's so much to do. If you do a little bit of the world-building work beforehand, figure out what it is you're trying to run, think about what you want to put into that setting, you can pick and choose published material, and then you can pick and choose within that published material that you've already chosen, which parts make sense for you. So I think that is a real key to efficiency that I use, even if I do maybe almost all of my world homebrew. I get a huge efficiency bump from getting a lot of the details that I need, or a lot of the big inspirations that I need, 
from published materials that I have pointed out. Definitely. I remember we talked early about, well, what happens if I do all this world building and my players go in a completely opposite direction? That is always a possibility. So if my players were to decide they know about a pirate city, if they were to decide not only are we going to go and visit that pirate city, but then we're going to become pirates, they would successfully bypass a lot of the world building that I've done. They could, if they wanted to, they could escape the plot and the world building. And I don't think they will because there's a social contract there of my players want to see what's at the end of this thing that I've been working on for them. And and having that give and take is really important. But what are the things that I can do such that it's not a chore for them to not go and avoid the plot? I think sometimes as DMs, We don't do our players enough favors by dropping the main plot in front of them and making it easy for them to interact with the main plot. And then then that's followed up with the question of, well, I don't want to I don't want to broadcast to my players where the plot is. I want them to feel like they're discovering the plot. So how can we how can we do all this when we're preparing our session? We've done this work about the larger world when we're preparing our session the characters and the places and the conflicts that the players are going to interact with should be drawn from this graph of interconnected relationships and the things that you're pulling from should be things that are connected to that major plot. Which is where your tool really comes in handy. I think it's this idea of if your plot is very interconnected, your players will naturally encounter it and be excited by it because they were doing the thing they wanted to do and it connected to the main plot line. If you don't have that kind of interconnected plot, they can do what they want to do and it leads them away from the main plot line instead. So I think that that's a really good use of world building to keep your world tightly connected. I think that's a very good process point that people can latch onto. And I think it's really interesting that also answers, I think, one of the hardest questions that there is in D&D or any tabletop game. How do I get my players invested in the story? If most of the things that they do that they choose to be invested in themselves lead to the story, that's one way to do it. I, I have a couple other ways that I like to do it too that I think tie into this question of how can I world build in a way that gives me joy and gives my players joy. So I like to put in little tidbits of my lore that maybe was in my notebook, you know, four years ago, five years ago that I don't get to use as much as I want or lore that I just came up with and was excited about the week before. I can give that to my players in ways that don't necessarily drive into the immediate plot. So it's kind of the opposite. If you have everything interconnected, the things you tell your players will drive them to the main plot and that will get them on your path. You can also drop in things that aren't related to the main plot, but are things you're excited about. So the two ways I like to do that are through rumors and legends. And they're very similar at face value, but I think the difference is a rumor is something you only get told if somebody trusts you. And a legend is something, a grand story that somebody might want to tell you about. And I think those differences manifest very interestingly in your game. I was wondering, Ray, do you have in your interconnected plots notes about what things people will only tell you when you 
trust them or when you gain their trust? Admittedly, this is a part of my world building that is a little bit more shallow. In my, in my world, I my world is very sprawling, uh, almost too sprawling, so much to the point where in our, our last D&D session, I basically walked my players, not walked, but my players and I discussed from beginning to present everything that's happened in the campaign, and they were taking notes on the open plot hooks because there are so many different directions that they could have gone in and still those plot hooks are open and dangling and they can still go in those directions that's cool that they're excited about all those open plots that i think that means that you were successful it was it was a great experience it was it was really fulfilling to have them engage with the story in that way and be really curious about all these different things and and then the things that they decided to go and try and follow up on were not the things that I thought they were going to do nor are they the things that I think they were planning on doing at the end of the last session where the thing that was fresh in their mind was just the things that they kind of like bumped into in the last session yeah, that's cool. It makes sense that they wouldn't immediately come up with the thing that they were excited about because it's a big open world. You know, their imagination is a big open space and it's easy to forget things. And when you're reminded of previous things that you were excited about, you latch back onto them. Absolutely. Something I was saying earlier was this is admittedly a part of my world building that's kind of shallow. And what I mean by that is I don't have all that much subjective information floating around my world. A lot of the things my players hear about are objective truths. They're just hearing about events and people that exist or have happened, and they're not often falsified reports or modified through different tellers' perspectives. There's not a lot of telephone going on in my world. I think that for my group, that's actually a boon and not something that I should invest more time in because there's so much going on and like not in a not in a good way. There's like so many different loose directions to go in, too many, that I think that if I started sprinkling in false information and my players were to latch on to something like that and take that direction and make a mistake or go in a wrong direction because of that it would not be a fun feeling at the table. Yeah, it's like every single plot that they removed from Game of Thrones, the show that was in the books, was that kind of information because there's already so much going on that they removed a lot of these red herrings because there's just too much to keep track of of the things that are objectively true. Trying to fool the audience with things that are false like would have been too much to handle. So I think that there's some merit there. But the alternative is how far are you into the Stormlight Archives, I, I have to ask. I just finished the first book, I think maybe three weeks ago, and I forced myself not to purchase the next one because I had no life while I was uh, consuming that book. The The ways the way that I consume media is I binge. I, I like to keep to my routine, and what that means is when I discover something that I love, not only do I become consumed by it and distracted by it on a regular basis, but it also breaks up my routine, which uh, I don't like. So what I like to do is just completely sacrifice an entire day or two days or three days of productivity to get through a thing that I'm loving and enjoying and revel in it, and then 
put it away and put it to the side. And then, and then when I have a, another good opportunity to break into something like that is when I'll get the next book. I, I feel the same way about Stormlight. It was totally engrossing for me. I remember like taking lunch breaks where I would usually sit down with friends and we would chat and I just went to a quiet corner of the office and read because it's so good. But it is an example. I won't get too deep into it for our listeners, but also you, where I think the author does a great job of having a rich textured world where there are many uncertainties. There are many subjective experiences. I got really inspired by that and some other fiction series that I read to put in more narrators that are giving biased perspectives, sometimes often purposefully, if they have an agenda, a motive for giving a biased perspective, I think that adds great story and great character drama to your game of D&D. But if they're just accidentally doing so because the people don't know the truth, I think that is also a fun experience where the players get to come to a realization like, oh my god, this Lich was actually, you know, some other character from some other place and they had these other motivations and everyone was wrong. And now they need to decide, should we tell them or not? And I think that can be really interesting too. So I like this idea in world building of kind of giving subjective experiences through rumors and legends, which are often expected to be untrue. Like your players are going to go in and if they hear something really wild or really quietly hushed, they might expect it to not be the objective truth. I think that that is a great way to add flavor and texture to your world and is a particularly successful strategy when your world's scale and scope is a little bit smaller. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So that either means early in your campaign, before your players have experienced all that much of the world, or if you are running a tight campaign just by design. So Waterdeep Dragon Heist is an example of a campaign where the entire story takes place in a single city. That's a great place to introduce rumor, legend, and intrigue into your game because they're going to keep bumping into the same fairly small and well-curated cast of characters as opposed to exploring new countries and new lands because every new country and every new land is going to have its entire whole set of new rumors and legends yeah so one of the ones that i got inspiration from was that there's a city in the sky and i think this is a good legend because it is verifiable for your players but not for the person that told you the legend probably i'll bet your players will eventually find a way to search the skies to check if this thing is true And you can make that legend a little bit more rich if you say, oh, the great heroes of the past were immortal and they didn't die. They actually went to the city in the sky. It's almost like a Mount Olympus situation. And maybe a rumor that is a little bit more small scale, not so grand as a legend, is just that, oh, this sheriff in town, he's old, but he's so good at his job because he was actually this great adventurer who retired and and settled down and now he's keeping our town safe. And that's something that your players can try to verify also, but they're probably pretty skeptical of if they just heard it from, you know, some hushed tone somewhere. Or maybe they won't be skeptical because they've never encountered a lie before, uh, if it is a lie. Or maybe you make it the truth and then it's another really cool tie-in to a new character. But I think those are just good examples of things that are simple, easy for your players to accept and work with or kind of ignore. 
and also are not necessarily part of your main storyline. So this kind of interconnectedness, very important, but also these branching points for your players to pick up on that won't completely derail them are also, I think, really nice. Like your adventure is not going to get completely derailed if they go talk to the sheriff and try to spy on him to figure out if he was this great hero of old. Yeah, I think that rumors, legends, customs, things that are present everywhere in your world, things that everybody knows about and maybe practices or or doesn't practice explicitly, perhaps they're a part of a rival faction or civilization, are useful and give your players ways to interact with NPCs because they share customs with those NPCs. So a great example is like taking your shoes off before you go inside. If that's something that you know is very important to an entire society of people, your players can get in an NPC's good graces by practicing those manners or customs when they're interacting with those NPCs, even if they've never met this particular character before. Right. I really like that example of taking off shoes because it's a real world example. I have another real world example I've used a few times and I made like some towns a little bit more religious and that's just saying grace. And I think that that's a really nice one because it gives your players a chance to improv and to role play uh, and to talk about something that they really enjoyed in the game or that they're nervous about in the game and pray for help or just talk to their party about you know, something cool that they've done. And I think that giving players a little bit of space to talk about the things they've done is fun on its own, but it does actually add texture to the setting. You're creating a world where your players get to interact with other people or by going to someone else's home and hearing them say grace and getting to learn a little bit about an NPC's life in a way that is natural. Now you get to give out lore, you get to give out exposition via a custom that your players have participated in before and makes sense and doesn't feel forced. And I think that's really nice. Definitely. Yeah, so I think we've I think we've talked about a lot. Um, just I think to bring it home to perhaps the the revelation that I had that has been very useful for me personally. I imagine that this will mileage will vary for folks out there. If you feel like you're not writing as much as you would like to be, or you feel like your players aren't interacting with the writing that you do do, I would highly recommend switching over to this new approach to world building, which is writing interconnected notes or a web of notes that can link to each other. It's very low weight. Like whenever I open up a connection, it's just bracket, bracket, the word, and it actually auto-completes. Build out this graph, and then when you're writing up the session, the, the thing that your players are going to interact with next time, make sure you either pull from that graph and drop into the session, or the things that you're creating for this session connect to that graph. And what that ensures is that no matter which of the 10 different directions your players can go in, they are going in the direction of the graph and the interconnectedness of the graph ensures that your content is going to be used, which is super important and very fulfilling. And as a part of that process, I think you can always ask yourself, is this something I want my players to encounter? 
Is this something I want my players to learn by the end of this arc? That way, when you're writing out those notes, you're creating those linked resources. If you find you're writing your 100-piece web and you're filling out like 10 parts of it that you actually don't want to present to your players that was just backstory for you, spend less time on it or maybe cut it out. Make your focus on those nodes of your interconnected notes on what your players are going to encounter, what you want your players to see and feel and experience at your table. And when you're sitting down to to write about the thing that you are excited to write about, just use placeholder names. Make sure you use consistent placeholder names so that way you can go back and change them all in one fell swoop. So that the program actually works. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Use block names like Pirate King A, uh, Merchant Prince B, you know, like these things that would derail you from writing about the thing that you sat down to write about. Get to the end of that and then start to click into these blank notes that you've created and add the necessary details for what your players are going to interact with. Yeah, I think that's really, really important to gaining this efficiency we're talking about to really encourage you to write more and not feel like you're overwhelmed or feel like you're tired. Use this efficiency of having the tool do a lot of the work for you. I think that's a great way to work quickly and work efficiently. And I think you'll have really successful campaigns, really successful individual sessions, and you'll have worlds that you can bring to any D&D campaign you want to in the future because it'll all be organized for you already. Yeah. If you have a specific workflow that you have that you think works really well for you, reach out to us on our email address, our Twitter, or our Instagram. We'd love to hear about it. And we wish you the best of luck. Until next time, I'm Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails. Thank you.